Hey there, and welcome to the Oscars Death Race podcast, where we try to watch all of the Oscar-nominated movies or die trying. My name is Paulo, and I'm your host. Happy March, everyone. Can you believe we're already two months done with 2021, uh, and we're nearing a one-year anniversary of a particular event, uh, but more importantly, we're less than two weeks away from finding out the final nominees of the Oscars. Between that and New York reopening this week, you know, super exciting stuff for the movie world. Now, one bit of housekeeping. This week, I guest starred on the ContraZoom podcast about the films I'm looking forward to in 2021. Dakota, who runs ContraZoom, is a dear friend of the show, so definitely go and share some love with him whenever you get the chance. Uh, now, if you watched the Golden Globes this past weekend, and I didn't, and apparently uh, most people didn't either, only one-third of the people from it had one-third of the number of people who watched it compared to last year. Um, anyway, if you watched the Golden Globes, your predictions for who may be getting nominated for the Oscars may have all been thrown out of whack with some expected winners. I'm looking at you, best lead actress. Um, and now, while I personally don't put much stock in the Globes, um, I mean, have you seen the reports about how not diverse they are and how kind of out of touch they are? Um, they still do have an impact on what people perceive to be the front runners of the race, which kind of is all that really matters at this point, right? Um, I won't go over all of the winners for all the categories, but two bright spots that stand out for me uh, Minari winning as I expected uh, best foreign language film as well as Chloe Zhao winning best director uh, the second woman and first Asian woman to win the category uh, Nomadland also won best drama film uh, which reinforced that film's position as the favorite to win the Oscar now, with that in mind, this week we'll be take, talking about uh, those two films, Minari and Nomadland, as well as Sound of Metal, which sits just outside the top 10 for Best Picture on Gold Derby as a stunning performance by Riz Ahmed. Uh, these films are directed by, or star, or both, uh, individuals of Asian heritage. Uh, in the same way a few episodes back we talked about we talked with my friend Ed about the moment that black film is having at this at this point in time uh, this episode I am joined by Ray Liu of the Real Asian podcast to talk about the mo moment Asian American and Asian representation is having in film right now uh, even if aside from Minari the narratives aren't specifically about being Asian or Asian American per se we also dig into an episode of Variety's Actors on Actors that start that featured Riz Ahmed and Steve Yuen to better contextualize the representation within these films. Link to that, as well as to Ray's podcast, will be in the show notes. Again, this conversation is not spoiler-free, though we did record this again before the Golden Globes were uh, aired. So you know, but if the spoiler-free part, the, uh, not being spoiler-free, matters to you. Uh, hit pause, go watch those films, they're all amazing. Uh, I'll say this in the, in the interview, but Minari is my fav personal favorite film that we've seen thus far. Um, check out those films and come back and listen to this conversation. But without further ado, let's hop into my conversation with Ray about Minari, Nomadland, and Sound of Metal. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. So, dear listeners, if you've listened to me on this podcast or other podcasts, you know that I have a particular interest being Filipino-American in Asian representation in film, from Crazy Rich Asians, you know, proving that an all-Asian cast can be a box office success, to last year's Parasite making history as the first Korean film to win Best Picture, among, you know, other categories. Now more than ever, Asian and Asian-Americans have had have been having a moment in the spotlight at the movies, and in this year's Oscars, it's no different. 
Now, I'm joined this episode by Real uh, Raymond Liu of Real Asian Podcast. Real Asian Podcast is a show focused on Asian and Asian American related films. Each episode presents discussions from a variety of angles, both in a micro-macro view of Asian American culture and pop culture. Co-host Raymond Liu, Renee Ya, Alan Duong, and Baldwin Deep analyze and unpack the what, how, and why these films are worth talking about. Recent episodes of theirs have covered classics like Seven Samurai, dramas like Tiger Tail, documentaries like Be Water, and popcorn flicks like Disney's live action Mulan Remake. On today's episode, we have Raymond Liu. He's a first-generation Chinese-Vietnamese-American born and raised in the Bay Area. By day, he's an associate director at the San Jose State University and a program manager for Project by Project, a nonprofit organization focused on Asian-American leadership development through community outreach and advocacy. By producing stories for the AAPI community, he hopes to inspire others to raise their own voice and share their own unique experiences. Please join me in in welcoming Raymond Liu. Hello, hello. Hey. Paulo, very nice to be here. I am honored and uh, it's a pleasure to be on your podcast to talk about these films and really love the work that you're doing. I've been really paying attention to this Oscars death race. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into the death race, but uh, you know, let, let's let's flip it around. We'll kick in. So when did you and, and your co-host decide to start a Real Asian podcast? What was the impetus behind all that? Yeah, so actually the, the, this podcast started after the death of another podcast idea that we had. So originally, um, it was me, Alan, and a friend of ours named Brian, we wanted to start a podcast that was more of the interview format. It was going to center and focus around nonprofit organizers or leaders, um, specifically or primarily in the Asian American space. This is around like November 2019. I bought all this equipment, bought all these mic stands, and I got the interface and all that stuff. And then uh, the pandemic hit. (laughs) So... So we're like, I was left with all this gear and I was like, oh shoot, like, what do we do now? At the time, very, I had no experience in terms of podcasting or just media or interview and any of the stuff like that. So I didn't even consider like virtual recording. I was also kind of thinking like, how would virtual recording work? And considering all the logistics, we just decided to scrap the idea, but we still wanted to do a podcast. So we all got together and we were all in our house and on a virtual call. And I think we were just kind of bouncing, throwing ideas at the wall. You know, we found out that we all love watching movies. So we were kind of thinking, like, hey, you know, why don't we just start a podcast where it's just us talking about, you know, these Asian American films that are coming out and Asian American films that are already out. I think we all felt that we're kind of reaching this stage in in cinema where representation and there's such a vast variety of representation within the Asian community and Asian American community. So we wanted to step in front of it. And that's how we came up with Real Asian Podcast. Awesome. Uh, So what are your favorite Asian and Asian American films uh, in specific? Maybe those that you've seen for the podcast or even those not yet covered on there? Yeah. So uh, recently we did The Farewell. It's not out yet, but we recorded it. And rewatching that, I was like, wow, this movie is really effing amazing. Lulu Wang just did an amazing job. Aquafina and, and the grandma, I forget her name, sorry. But I would say Farewell definitely is up there as, top, as one of my top favorites. If I'm allowed other choices, uh, Always Be My Baby is great. Um, half of it is amazing. Um, and these are just obviously like the recent films that have just come out. But if I were going classics, I mean, first movie that comes to mind is Joy Luck Club. You know, uh, that's just a, a milestone in Asian American representation at a very early stage. And then also, I like Saving Face. I got to watch that recently. That came out in 2004. 
Um, that one was an indie film that also directed by Alice Wu. So those are my top three. Another one I do want to mention that growing up, Dragon, the Bruce Lee story with Jason Scott Lee. Yeah, that was a good one. For me, I'm thinking, I forget the name, but it's the, I think it's the debut, which is like the Dante Bosco film mm. about just being Filipino-American. That's, yeah. a, that's a super hype one that I, that I really enjoyed. And then recently, you know, I also saw The Farewell last year. I think it was robbed of the Oscars last year. Yeah. Uh, it still got it nominated, I think. But uh, it is what it is. Um, I will say I also really enjoyed Yellow Rose last year. Um, oh, man, I need to watch that. I was, I was lucky. It was, it was screening at a film festival here in New York City. So uh, I was able to see it before it actually came out uh, last year. And what about non-Asian film? It kind of broadening the spectrum. What are your kinds of films you enjoy watching? Yeah, you know, I loved a lot of movies when I was growing up. Obviously, the big Hollywood action films. You know, more recently, I do love the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, I'm going to be honest, like, uh, just amazing how they were able to put all those movies together and tie it all together. But also, like, they're, they have depth to it. So I do love that. I, I generally like anything that has Leonardo DiCaprio in it. Lord of the Rings trilogy is one that I always will try to watch every now and then. Uh, I do like Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogies, and that one's a a good favorite of mine of non-Asian. Okay. Okay. So, you know, just for clarification, right, you're not participating in my crazy Oscar death race of trying to watch all <laughs> 50 some odd films. Um, but, you know, uh, we talked about a little bit before we started recording and you do try to keep up with, with some Oscar films in general. Um, you know, obviously the ones that have Asian representation that they're making buzz, which we'll talk about this episode, um, but also some others as well. So, you know, you said Leonardo DiCaprio, he obviously comes up in Oscar nominations a lot. Um, any other, you know, what, what other Oscar films do you tend to, to keep up with? I try to pay attention to the coverage of Oscar films. Sometimes there's a suggested movie uh, like on the streaming services and you know how they kind of categorize it as like critically acclaimed, right? And that's how I kind of catch on to it. Even before COVID, you know, obviously when people were going to movie theaters, I never really had the time to go out go out to to movie theaters so i i wasn't finding myself opportunities to really go out and search and watch all these oscar worthy pictures all the most of the time i just tried to take a look at what's kind of hot and what's the talk of the town if anything usually i when i do see the oscars it's after they win an award or whatever the nominations are then i go okay Thanks for the reminder. I should go see that. All, all, all at your own pace. At the very least, you know, I was able to get you to watch some potential Oscar nominees for yeah. this podcast. So get a little bit of a heads up this time. So speaking of, we'll go ahead and hop in, right? So for this episode, you know, like we mentioned, there's a lot of Asian and Asian American representation in the Oscars uh, this year, uh, particularly both in front and behind the camera with some strong front runners there. Uh, this episode, we'll be talking about Minari, Nomadland, and Sound of Metal. Minari and Sound of Metal are both led by an Asian American uh, lead um, and in, from Minari, a broader cast, while Nomadland and also Minari are directed and co-written uh, by an Asian American, Asian and Asian American. So, you know, we'll, we'll dig into each of those respectively. And again, a, a, another warning, this is going to be a spoiler zone um, since we've seen this and we want to kind of go in depth, um, but definitely make sure you check these out uh, if you as soon as possible. I think they're definitely going to be worth it. If not for, you know, 
your for the Oscar athletes at the very least for your own personal enjoyment. All right, we'll start the things off first with Minari, and now I know Ray that you already had an episode on Real Asian podcast about Minari. So you know, just just for the just for the listeners, right? Uh, Minari is a semi autobiographical film based on the childhood of director writer Lee Isaac Chung. It follows the Yees, a family of South Korean immigrants who moved from California to rural Arkansas to start a farm in the 1980s. Uh, this is an A24 film and stars Steve Yuen as patriarch Jacob Yi and premiered at Sundance in 2020, won the U.S. Dramatic Grand Jury Prize and the U.S. Dramatic Audience Prize there. Uh, it has a number of had, has had a number of virtual releases beginning as far back as February 2020 and released theatrically just a couple of weeks ago on February 12th and will be available on PVOD, uh, I believe actually uh, this past weekend, uh, the 26th. So um, it is currently, according to the Gold Derby, th- mo- third most likely for Best Picture fourth most likely for best director Lee Isaac Chung fifth for best actor Steve Yuen third for supporting actress Yoo Jung Yoon uh, the grandmother uh, third for original screenplay seventh for cinematography fifth for score and seventh for original song Rain Song so Ray that's definitely a lot of praise uh, going on from Minari here when did you watch the film uh, for for Real Asian Podcast yeah so uh, we were actually very lucky enough to catch an early screening before its wide release on Lunar New Year I believe not because I remember I think they were very intentional my nonprofit that I'm a part of someone shared on this like hey um, this organization is having you sign up for an early screener of Minari go for it and so when we caught to see it it was basically four hours of being able to watch it so I watched it twice just back to back and it also came with like a pretty cool Q&A that the institution did with the director Lee Isaac Chung yeah it was probably early on this February beginning of February just about yeah yeah, I, I was able to see it actually. I think uh, Korean American Day A24 had like a number of limited screening. And I think I caught it back in January. And I think mine also had like the, you know, four hour time period plus a QA, what I believe hosted by Sandra O. Oh. Then also, you know, sat out Gold House, Gold Open, and in kind of all of their work with the community and getting a bunch of free screenings. My alumni association, we were able to get the screening. With, you know, I think one of the points I think I, I wanted to talk about is that this, I, I grew up in, in Northern Florida, right? Which is kind of like somewhat the South, right? And so there was like a, interesting dynamic of like being Asian, Asian American, uh, growing up in the South, right? Which is like, I think Isaac Chung, you know, Lee Isaac Chung really, really spoke to here, right? And it's pretty interesting. Like from my perspective, it was obviously like looking back now, like with kind of like the knowledge I have, yeah, those probably was some degrees of like institutional racism, like kind of like systematic racism in place, but on like a very personal level, right? Like in the same way that like that was shown in the film here, I don't think anyone was truly overtly racist against me and my family. And, and that wasn't really shown in this film either, right? Like it was a genuinely welcoming, you know, white community, right? Maybe, maybe there were some racist things said, but more so out of ignorance more so than than malice, I think, which is I think a very nuanced perspective. One of the other things I appreciated was that that itself wasn't the main focus of the film. It was kind of like in the background. Yeah, no, that, I think that what you bring up is exactly uh, an amazing point. That is something I caught on to. Uh, I think you're referring to the scene where the, the family goes to the church or the nearby church, and then you see um, the little white kid staring at Alan Kim's character, I think David, just staring at him. And you, you know, us as like me as an Asian person, you already kind of know and, and catch on to say, like, obviously, this white kid is probably uh, staring at this kid because it's the first Asian person he's ever seen, you know, in this small town, Arkansas, right? 
And then you see the actual interaction with the kid where it's like, why? I think he says, like, why is your nose flat? Or he makes some kind of facial observation. And I, I kind of noticed where I kind of almost had a knee-jerk reaction where I was kind of like, hey, you know, I wanted to say, hey, that's racist kind of thing. But I also had to dial it back to say, again, this kid, first Asian person he's obviously seen, he says it in a way where it's kind of very innocent. And, you know, it wasn't very malicious. It wasn't out of hate. It, and, and then they turn out to be friends, you know, and that was just, I think, Lee Isaac Chung's intention to show like that was the reality that, you know, a lot of Asian people or his family experienced. It wasn't out of hate, but just out of pure, innocent ignorance. Right, right. So, you know, aside from, you know, aside from kind of that conversation, what else about this film worked for you? Were there any particular favorite parts um, or any any themes or any resonances that, that really stood out to you here? Yeah, you know, um, pretty much any scene with the grandma and the kids. Uh, the grandma, Yoon Youngjun, she was amazing. So adorable. It did remind me of my own grandma who's who's passed now. But I remember growing up, she she was always happy to see her grandkids, always smiling, always willing to cook, you know, just always caretaking. And it's so funny because as an adult, you're seeing the unconditional love that the grandmother portrays. But then you also laugh at the fact that David, the son, is like, <laughs> he's like, you're not, you're not the grandma I pictured, right? He's like trying to like, he's like push her away in a way. And us as adults, like, oh, you know, boys are being kind of boys. Also, the, the scenes with Monica, I think Yeri Han did an amazing job of really showing her ability to collect all the emotional stress of the family uh, and, and mainly what Jacob, Stephen Young's character, is putting her through. And you can just see the, uh, the pain that she's trying to withhold back. And so a lot of the times with her scenes, I was split between I understand what Jacob is trying to do to provide for his family, but he also... You know, with the, the way that the camera like close shots into her face, you're also seeing the amount of pain that it, he's putting her through. We'll come back to, to Yeri Han's performance in a little bit, which I, I think she's she's not quite in the running for like a, an act, lead actress or supporting actress, unfortunately. But I would love to see her get like a sneak in nomination know, somewhere right? um, in there. But in, in any case, right? To, so to, to the to the point on the grandma, right? I think one thing I really loved was the cultural specificity, mm-hmm. right? When it's like she brings like the specific Korean foods and Korean spices. Yeah. Right, and you see like Yeri Han's like her relief at at all of that, right? And and seeing like oh, this culturally specific thing from my touch of home, right? Right, exactly. And also, I, I one thing I, I didn't realize at the time, what I've since found out is that you know the reason the grandmother loves Mountain Dew, right, which isn't good for you as much as I love to drink it, is is because like it translates to mountain water, which in Korea I believe is like the the mountain water is considered to be healthier, right? So that's like a a, a funny little quirk that. I didn't pick up on until I, I saw more conversation about it. One of the things, though, that the grandma brought up, I think, was a really interesting reflection of the current state of being Asian American, I think, in America with regards to intergenerational differences, right? Mm-hmm. Where, like, the grandma and, to some degree, the parents have grown up in a certain way, but then Alan and his sister, who, you know, is a, another sleeper who, unfortunately, I don't think gets as much sign in the film as the other characters, but the two siblings, the two siblings, like, they... Are trying to live both in the American world and the uh, and the and and also the Korean heritage, while Jacob still tries to separate from the Korean bubble of California. I believe they still mostly keep to themselves away from the rest of the community, right? And and try to be self sufficient. So it's an interesting dynamic of that interge- intergenerational differences. I think. Yeah, and and it's just interesting how you know Chung explored the idea of 
David think, saying to his grandmas is like, you're not my grandma. You're not my real grandma kind of thing. And I, I, I just took that as like, just because he knows that she's coming from Korea, this perceived other world for him. Right. And he was kind of trying to say, that's not what grandma's. He had this just as a young boy, like he had just this picturesque version of a, what a grandma should be. Yeah. Probably like a white grandma who like makes cookies. Exactly. Kind of makes cookies and all this. Exactly. Exactly. Then that's probably, and if we're to, if I was to speculate, maybe some kind of backstory of their life in California, right. They probably just watched a lot of TV and he just saw that until they moved out into this mobile home in Arkansas. There was another scene I think I love, I just want to mention is the dinner scene with Paul, the farm help. Uh, that was one of my favorite scenes too, because it was just a nice, heartwarming, you know, moment where Paul's kind of opening up and trying all these new Korean dishes, and it was just again, uh, Paul was one of my favorite characters too, played by Will Penn, and just the way that he so, so that southern charm he brought that in, and so opening to the family, and so willing to help, and and kind of acted as like this steadying piece for the family, especially when Jacob's having the most trouble trying to get his farm going and he's just kind of level-headed and he's a little quirky right and we see that part of him when he's kind of walking down the road with the big cross yeah but. i mean he's he's another out he's another outsider in the community just like the yeast are yeah yeah exactly exactly one other thing which i think you briefly mentioned in your episode on realism podcast which i don't think you elaborate on as much is the idea of like the asian male immigrant masculinity, right? And and to some degree how it's mm-hmm. somewhat self-destructive for for PVN's character, um, but also like completely relatable to some degree as well. Like what is it like as like an Asian American, you know, sec- like 1.5 generation Asian American male living in the States, right? Like there's like a I I I guess I really frankly haven't had like the chance to have that conversation with a lot of people about like that pressure to like, you know, provide and like cons- and conform to like the traditional Asian as Asian rules, but then also like the more American, like, you know, do your own thing. And there's like this whole pride wrapped up into it, which I, I guess I don't have quite the words to express. But it's definitely something that just like really resonated with me. I don't know about, did, did you did you take the same thing away? Yeah, no, I, I picked that up too. And I'm so glad that you want to talk a little bit more of it. Yeah, it's this idea. Yeah, I think it just comes from this somewhat of a patriarchal, cultural, gender norm, gender expectation kind of mentality. And I'm trying to kind of go back into like the 1980s, which is when the movie took place. This idea that the man is supposed to be able to provide, like that is the core purpose, if you will, in a marriage. And again, this is just what was expected back then. The other side of it, you have, you know, the the wife or the female who's supposed to take care of the family, who's supposed to look out for the kids, more of the nurturing type. And the man is supposed to go out and work hard and stuff like that. So it did shift a little bit because I think Lee Isaac Chung talked about it in the Q&A. What was interesting is that when the family was in Korea, it, it actually molded more into those gender norms. And then when they moved and immigrated to America, it kind of switched a little bit because the family was put in a very uncomfortable starting all over state. And if you think about starting all over and you're already in the marriage and you're trying to provide for your family, that does require some more of a partnership with your partner. And so for Jacob's perspective, I don't think he realized and he took for granted how Monica was able to be that steadying focal point for the family. But I think he was also just so caught up on his farm he just believed that providing equals happy family. And Monica was was trying to tell him, like, no, it's family equals family, right? And and I think that just come that was really interesting how he portrayed that. 
And then there's like another layer on top of it of like wanting to pursue like the American dream and like doing your own yeah. thing, like being fulfilled, right? Like if Jacob, you know, Stephen Yuen's character was purely about providing for his family, he could have done it in California doing the chicken work, right? Like that he was right. supposedly really good at there. But he specifically said, I want to go to Arkansas, get this land and grow something that no one else will and make something of myself. So there's like some sort of ego there of like, he has to do it his way and Definitely. like have his own self-fulfillment. Like it's kind of implied throughout the film that like Yeri Han's character, Monica, grew up in the city in Korea, whereas Jacob grew up in the country and that his idea for the farm came from his childhood of growing, you know, growing plants. So like this is something he wants to do for himself. And to the point toward the end of the film, it kind of like nearly destroys their merits where he chooses the farm basically over the family, right? Because it's for his ideal and not just to support the family. And on top of that, right, like his own somewhat pig-headedness about like, I'm going to make this work. I'm not like, people are going to scam me. I'm not going to pay the guy looking for water. I'm going to find it myself. I'm going to use up all of our money to like, for the, for the, from the water pipes and whatever. And at the end of the film, like he swallows his pride and moves on with Monica and accepts the help to like, you know, find the water. So I think that's like a really, that's just something I've never seen before in Asian, in, in, in American film, really, about like that immigrant experience. Of- no, no, that's a great point. And it just illustrates how I think that the barn burning was an illustration and a moment where it finally got through Jacob's thick head that his family is really going to be the best thing that supports him, not the farm. And, you know, you see that. He obviously, in a in a moment of panic, he goes inside the barn uh, the barn to save the crops, but then Monica runs right in with him. So it also shows Monica is understanding of like there's all this work that he put into it into this bar and this barn and this farm that she's you know and they I guess they just agreed that they would split up, but in a moment of crisis, it, it revealed their true feelings for the family, and then on the other side it. Other side of it, you see David, the the son, run after the grandma. And so as much tension and, and struggle that you may have within your own family dynamic and different stressors in life, it's all about coming back together. I think that was the message. Right. And you know, we've gone on for I think like 20 minutes at this point on this film without even really touching much of like the category <laughs> nominations. Understandable. I just really want to talk about this film. I frankly speaking, I think this is probably my favorite film of everything I've seen so far. This would be if I could pick my best picture, this is my best picture, frankly speaking. I feel like you, you saw it early and then you've just been dying to talk about it because I know, you know, I know. Now that said, I do want to touch on specifically Steve Yuen, right? And his background, right? So he was born in Korea, as we alluded to, moved to the US at age five. Did some improv acting uh, in, in Chicago before ending up his breakout role as Glenn on The Walking Dead. Um, since then, he's had a pretty good career you know, on TV. He's been uh, his voice. He's done some voice acting for Avatar 1 in Legends of Korra, as well as Keith in the Voltron Adventure series. Um, and then he also appeared in Jordan Peele's Twilight Zone. And then in film, um, in addition to you know Minari, he also appeared in Bong Joon-ho's earlier film, Okja, uh, as K, um, where he flexes his Korean speaking skills as well. Um, in action comedy film Mayhem, uh, he did. He was a surprise hit in Boots Riley's "Sorry to Bother You" a couple years ago, which I really enjoyed. And then a couple years ago, also he was in Lee Chang Dong's "Burning," uh, which is the first ever Korean film to be shortlisted for the Oscars, um, which was just a year before Parasite. They didn't make the nomination for Best International Film, but many people considered one of the best films of the year, if not the decade. So I really think you know, we, as we just talked about, Stevie Wen just really does a great bit 
in in his acting here. Um, we'll talk about him more a little bit on in the episode. Um, I also, you know, it, I, I can't really talk about Minari without mentioning the Golden Globe controversy that happened. Um, obviously, this is an Oscar show. We're recording this the day before the Golden Globes, but um, this past weekend, as you're listening to this, the Golden Globes came out, and the only nomination that, Min- that Minari got was for a foreign language film which was like a bit of a shame. Mm-hmm. The Golden Globes in general had a problem nominating the other minority films. See my episode a couple bit ago about the uh, Ma Rainey and the Five Bloods pretty much getting shut out from the uh, from the Golden Globes as well. But, you know, I think this was made up for the Critics' Choice and specifically the Screen Actors Guild Awards uh, loved Minari and gave them a ton, which I think... Sp- is a little bit better for their chances because, you know, it's not just 90 journalists from the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. It's the actual Academy, just like the Screen Actors Guild and many others. So um, I have hopes that the the Oscars will will correct the wrongs that the Golden Globes did. Let's hope so. And, you know, I'm, I'm as shocked, but also not surprised. I mean, they, the Golden Globes or Hollywood Foreign Press did the same thing with The Farewell. And it's just because of this weird, arbitrary and incredibly archaic rule that i think it like if a film is like 50 or 60 percent non-english it they get it gets moved over to foreign and it's like what about the story it's american story yeah i mean i mean like like silver lining right i think minari is stronger than any other film in the foreign language category so at the very least it will win an an award which hopefully will snowball it to you know get more success down the line so Silver lining in all this. Um, I also do, you know, aside from Steve Yuen and this controversy, I do want to close on Isaac Chun's screenwriting process, uh, which was in the Q&A that I listened to. Apparently, he wrote this all in Excel, or at least the first draft in Excel. Um, So what he did was he took a bunch of memories of his just growing up as a kid, put them into various Excel spreadsheets, and then from there just combined them together to kind of make the major points of like that he wanted to include in the story. So I found that that, that just spoke to me as somebody mm-hmm. who loves using Excel all day. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's incredible. I didn't know about the Excel thing. I knew about the memory thing and it was really great because I think what I took out of that is I was like really interesting because he had already created films and usually with a up and coming director, they kind of create a personal story first because it's easiest. They're the most like, proximity wise they can just kind of pull from the memories but he took the time to sit down and wrote just a bunch of memories and like created a narrative out of it and what was really great he mentioned he's like i was very intentional of creating my uh creating a family based off my memory but not necessarily like a movie about my memories of my family yeah i will say right like this kind of led to the film screenwriting wise like maybe not be quite as tight as like some other films right? like a quentin tarantino film that or or aaron sorkin film that's like tightly scripted and like super paced out like this one's definitely more about like the feel of like being in the moment um and you know like we like we said this kind of is a, a telling of the american dream uh which is my transition to another film uh we're going to talk about about the american dream told through a series of memories nomadland so nomadland is a neo-western from searchlight pictures which was directed written, edited, and produced by Chloe Zhao, based on the 2017 nonfiction book Nomadland, Surviving America in the 21st Century. It stars Frances McDormand as a former factory worker who travels around the American West in her in her van, uh, living in her van, taking various odd jobs along the way and meeting different people, notably a community of nomads. It won the coveted Golden Lion at the Venice Film Festival and the People's Choice Award at the Toronto International Film Festival. It's the first film to ever do so and win both. It was released 
released on IMAX on January 29th and later released on Hulu and in theaters on February 19th. Um, it is currently the favorite in many categories, first for Best Picture, first for Best Director for Chloe Zhao, first for Adapted Screenplay, as well as third for Frances McDormand for Best Actress, second for Best Cinematography, and second for Best Film Editing. So, Ray, what were your thoughts on Nomadland when you saw it? <laughs> I loved it, honestly. So, And I'm very, very fortunate enough that it was able to come out on Hulu. I mean, I had heard about Nomadland when I, because um, I'm a Marvel fan, and, and I was looking up who was going to be directing The Eternals. I looked at Chloe Zhao. And unfortunately, I have not seen her other two films. Yeah, me neither. I, me neither. Yeah, not yet, but definitely will. It's on the list. She's amazing. I think it was a, a heart, another heartwarming tale that really just captured another side of the American story, right? The, in the heartland of America in a much more con- contemporary sense. So I think it was great. Yeah, I mean, it definitely hits upon like something in this moment, right? I think, I think like the best thing about films is that they reflect things like in this moment, right? Like if you listen to my episode a couple of weeks ago with Ed, and kind of like how all the black films still resonate in this moment of Black Lives Matter, right? And now, right, like Chloe's also like the idea of this disenfranchisement of people like with the economy, with our current structure of of, of America, and just choosing to like disen not not fully disengaged but like to reprioritize and just find like what's really important and just like live in your van and, and just take in nature and find these communities and make these memories and make the most of it right i think that's i think that's why this film is is hitting so hard with so many people oh definitely and what what chloe captures and what nomad land captures is you know we are moving so fast and our our economy and just our greater society technology is moving so fast and I think what Chloe says, like, you know, inevitably, not everyone goes along for the ride. And it, I, I thought it was interesting how we see Fern work at an Amazon warehouse. And, you know, immediately you think of Amazon, like, oh, gosh, this is a huge company, right? And, but even then, it's not a stable job, it's a seasonal job. So, you know, at one side of it, Amazon, the CEO, Jeff Bezos at the time was making millions. And then we're actually getting the perspective of Fern, who's someone who, who's lost her job and having to wander throughout America, pick up seasonal jobs just to be able to get by. Um, but I also, you know, I had a personal tie with the movie. It's, I, I'm an outdoorsy kind of guy. So I love the the nature shots and just being out there. And I, it just made me miss those times. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think that's definitely where it's like it's ranking for best cinematography comes in. It's just like amazing views of like the American West. Another thing that, that stood out is that a lot of the characters uh, in the film actually are real life nomads, actually. So the, the character Bob, um, he's his name is actually Bob. And he actually does run a conference like every year for nomads like learn these skills on how to like live in your vehicles and then just make the most of this life so swanky's character is another real life nomad as well as uh um, linda may is another real uh nomad as well so i found that really powerful that she was able to capture this small community of like of of, that's clearly tightly knit even if they don't see each other all the time right so like i love the ability to capture that chloe and her and some of her members of her crew also lived out in a van so that really shows on screen that she was able to adopt and and really put herself in that situation to be able to tell a story like nomadland We'll, we'll get back to Chloe in a second, but I also do want to mention Frances McDormand. Like, I think the other part of this film that isn't quite as talked as much as I've seen is just it's a film about grief, 
right? Like it's about yeah. Frances McDormand's character grieving her husband who had passed and the life that they had had, right? Like in Empire, which, you know, after the mind went away, is no longer there. And the idea of you're, you, someone who will live on as long as you remember them. And the reason that she couldn't fully embrace being with other people, even though like in the scenes when she was, you know, hanging out with David and all the other nomads, she was just like so happy. You can see that she had so much life in her. But then like when they when she was asked to take take a step further, like I really like you, stay with me for a while longer. She's like, I can't, I can't like give up these memories for loss of that. Like, I think she did an amazing job. The more I think about it, of portraying that grief. Fully agree. Frances McDormand did an amazing job. Masterful. Uh, no surprise there. She's one of the few performers in the world who's got the triple crown of acting, winner of an Academy Awards, Emmys, and a Tony, I believe. I think she perfectly captures the the feeling and the mood of Fern being able to show like what happens when you you have a loving relationship and then all of a sudden it's just taken away from you in some sense. And it's just hard for her to move on, you know, not just from a job perspective, but from an emotional perspective as well. Yeah, for sure. And you could see like it how how this experience of like, you know, of the of her character living abroad like really changed her. Like at the beginning of the film, it's New Year. She's just eating by herself soup in her van. At the end of the film, it's New Year again, and she's still in the same parking lot, right? But she now has like sparklers and she's going around say, greeting her neighbors Happy New Year, right? Like you can see that the experience changed there. And she really conveyed that super well, I think. Now the also the scene where where she's with the younger nomad. I think his name is the character's name is Derek. And that little conversation and kind of seeing the the differences. And like, you know, you have Fern who's, you know, um lived and had a, a marriage and then who's gone through more life experience. And then Derek, who's also on the other side, uh, much on a younger side. But I think in that scene, what I really got from that is that their soul, the restless soul in them kind of matched. And, and at the end of the day, they're, they're people and they're on the same kind of path, if you will, maybe different parts of the path, but on the same path of just trying to discover oneself. And I think that scene was, was beautiful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For sure, for sure. Uh, so speaking of Chloe Zhao, right? Like, so she's like we said, she's definitely a major up and comer. Uh, her two prior films were songs "My Brothers Taught Me" and "The Rider," which both got nominations at the Independent Spirit Awards. Um, and she, you know, again, like mentioned, tapped production on Rats production on the upcoming film "The Eternals." Um, so I'm just really interested in seeing, like, if she does win the Oscars, right? Like, like will they? they they're definitely going to be marketing the Eternals like by Oscar like Oscar winning director Chloe Zhao like damn if she do, if last last when she is nominated for best picture and director she would be the first Asian woman like to to be so she'd be the second to win best picture if she wins um behind the producer uh Kwak Sin A of Parasite um and also the first Asian woman to win best director as well as the first to also win best adapted screenplay if she wins um the only other nominated Asian woman in the category is Wang Hui Ling for Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon back in 2000 so she would definitely be a big step forward for you know Asian and Asian American specifically Asian she's a Chinese national um representation like in the Oscars now this film isn't an Asian American specific film unlike Minari right but what were you able to get anything that you think that someone else not in her of of her background of her experience of her cultural heritage wouldn't have been able to put into this film anything specific here yeah I think Chloe was able to incorporate you know, the journey men, journey woman feel, if you will, uh, being able to take herself from, from China and immigrating to America and not just like New York, Los Angeles, right? It, she 
travel to the heartland of America and put herself in an uncomfortable situation, I don't think uh, a non-Asian, I don't want to say like specifically Asian, but just someone from another country, really, if it was American born who's, who's from that area, they may have put a different perspective on it or like shown the movie in a different light. But Chloe was able to bring in that flavor, that, that, that spin to where she's like, let me show you how it can be very uncomfortable at first, kind of like in the beginning stages of the movie. But then, oh, wait, there are so many beautiful things that, that come to light, you know, um, with nature and, and, and the people that you meet on the road. And I think Chloe was very intentional with her collaborators and kind of portraying that message. Right. It's like feeling a little bit, again, somewhat disenfranchisement from like the mainstream American dream, right? Like it's not always the same for, you know, minority, you know, disenfranchised group, which Asian Americans are to some degree one part of, right? But they're still finding something in there, even if you still stand a little bit apart from it. Yeah. I, I, you know, to add on to that, I think for lack of a better word, and I don't, uh, it, it sometimes does take an a quote unquote outsider to really tell it how it is, you know, and because if you're part of that, um, you don't, again, you get a, a, a somewhat of a biased perspective, but if it's someone from uh, who's not part of that, you know, world, but is able to analyze it in a way and peel apart and, and just describe it and also tell a good story, that's where you get that unique movie that is able to capture what it's intending to capture. Right. No, def- definitely well said there. And, you know, obviously Nomadland is again, like kind of the favorite. Uh, we'll see if that momentum can keep up between now and the actual Oscars. Now, Nomadland is definitely, a, was a story of someone living in an RV, traveling across the country and, you know, uh, living, finding a misunderstood community living in rural areas, which also describes our next film, Sound of Metal. Mm-hmm. So this is a musical drama written and directed by Darius Martyr. It stars Riz Ahmed as a drummer in a metal uh, band duo who begins to lose his hearing and eventually has to learn how to cope with becoming deaf. Um, it premiered at the 2019 Toronto International Film Festival before being picked up by Amazon when it was released last year, November 20th, 2020. Uh, it's just outside the top 10 for Best Picture, currently ranked at number 12, but Riz Ahmed is currently number three for Best Actor, fourth for Best Supporting Actor for Paul Ratsy, uh, sixth for Best Original Screenplay, sixth for Best Editing, and this is, I think, head and shoulders well-deserved, number one for Best Sound, um, which is they recently just combined the sound mixing and sound editing categories into one. This is by far, I just want to say right now, the, by far the single best use of sound editing in a film I've ever seen or heard, I guess. I can't think of any other examples. Right, yeah, no, it fully... It- it's also just kind of a misdirection in a way, right? You, you kind of going to the film, and I watched it this will uh, this week uh, in preparation. Sound of Metal, and you know the cover of the film is you see um, Riz Ahmed's characters behind a drum set. So you think it's going to be loud. You think it's going to just be so many drum moments and him just like playing on the drums, which he did have to learn how to play the drums. But on the other side of it, it's not. And then you're getting you're getting perspective, and you're getting a. a, a a quick preview what is maybe what it's like to um, uh, of a deaf person's and obviously it's just a perspective of one but i think it was very creative and just added on so much incredibly to the movie yeah you definitely they definitely thought going in oh this is gonna just be another whiplash isn't it and no it's not another whiplash right right um, now, so we'll start off with talking about Riz Ahmed because I think aside from sound, that's another category he's like that this is you know pretty competitive for. Um, though he would be going up against the late Chadwick Boseman, so that's going to be a tough, tough mountain to climb. But um, that aside, you know, 
Again, it's not a specifically Asian American film, but it does star Riz Ahmed, who is a British Pakistani individual, multi hyphenate, right? Uh, he started off starring in independent films from 26, 2006 to 2013. His breakout performance was in Nightcrawler, opposite, opposite Jake Gyllenhaal, which is an amazing film. Uh, since then, he's appeared in a number of you know big studio films like Star Wars Rogue One, Venom, Jason Bourne, various TV shows, including an, an, an Emmy Award winning uh, film uh, for HBO's The Night Of. He was the first Asian male to win an acting Emmy and the first Asian and Muslim to to win a lead acting Emmy. And he also had a guest role on Girls, uh, which I apparently did throw in there. Um, He's also a musician under the name uh, Riz MC. uh, And he had a song on the Hamilton mixtape called Immigrants, We Get the Job Done, which won an MTV Video Music Award, uh, with much of his work being very politically minded in this context. He he reminds me of essentially like a a British-Pakistani version of of Donald Glover, basically. Mm, Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I mean, this this man is just incredible. He's just a pool or a bucket, if you will, of talent. And you, you mentioned the different outlets that he has, but he's also politically minded. He's also very aware, socially conscious. And his performance on Sound of Metal, being able to really portray the frustrations that you have and, and just his facial expressions and then his volatility of his emotions, uh, just amazing. Um, I did see him on Rogue One. I, I saw that, but I didn't really pay attention to to him at, and that movie but then i really started to pay attention to him when i watched venom his performance on there uh i don't think it was like absolutely fantastic but it was actually something that like put in my mind like put him on the map and so hearing about him being in in sound of metal and him able to act out this character it was just really beautiful yeah i think like obviously i think the sound editing does like like we said there's a huge job in carrying the narrative right and personifying him and like and what his perspective is but his act, his his acting opposite the sound design that we're getting, really helps sells it, right? And really help helps shift that. I think you know there is some maybe some minor quibbles where like oh the pacing is like a little bit weird, like it goes moves a little bit fast in some parts where it's like oh he's suddenly losing his hearing out of nowhere where it should be more like a gradual decline or like he's suddenly okay with the kids out of nowhere basically and that was like a little bit fast but that's more like a screenwriting thing than like his acting thing like when he commits i think that's really powerful i think for me i just saw this last night and for me what really like still sticks with me that like, even the day after is like that question of at the end like rewind it real quick before we get to that like i think the portrayal of the deaf community here is also supposedly pretty groundbreaking from what i've read as well the deaf community right like it's kind of as portrayed in the film right a large part of it is many people in the deaf community don't see their deafness as a handicap or as a, as a liability. They see it as like a part of their identity, who they are, not something to be fixed, right? Paul Ratzi specifically, he's hearing, but he was raised by deaf parents uh, and is fluent in ASL for the film. They had specifically many deaf actors and actresses in the film. And, you know, Riz, again, spent six months uh, learning ASL to be fluent for the film. Uh, we'll talk more on that again in a little bit. But, you know, I think there's this question, right? So at the end of the, like, the climax of the film is he decides to get the cochlear implants, which is kind of like a taboo, like the deed, so to speak, within the deaf community, right? And on one hand, it's sad because he lost, he, it causes him to lose this community that he's found joy in, right? On the other hand, right, like, I can't really say, say he did it for, ter- like, he's a terrible person because he's doing it for, like, you know, Lou, the girl that he loves, right? He felt he was losing her, and this is something he needed to do to try to be with her again. 
But then there's the emotional roller coaster of like, oh, the hearing that you get via the sound design, it's like very, very choppy, very metallic, you know, mechanical, and just like, was it worth losing that to try to get this relationship back, which you're at the end, you're not sir. And just like there's so many emotions in there that I I, I think Riz captured perfectly and I, I still can't gra- fully grapple with. No, honestly, when he, after he got the surgery and he was with the doctor and they're activating the sound and then, you know, you we get a taste of what, what he's hearing. I, I was hoping like, okay, I get it. They, some adjustments, right? And even the doctor's like, oh, you know, let me just make a few tweaks here and there. And I was hoping, I was expecting complete clarity, right? And then you realize, and then Riz was able to perf- uh, to perform, realize that, oh shit, like this is the way it's going to be. Like this is as best as it can go. I had all this expectation that I would get to where it used to be. And I think, you know, Darius Martyr wanted to make that point. It's like, it's kind of that classic tale of like, the grass is always greener on the other side, you know? And so Riz is already well-adjusted in this community, but he's still kind of keeping one hand on the wheel in terms of his old life with Lou and being a drummer and being able to hear. And I think he kind of, he does take it up, he does put it on upon himself when he constantly goes and checks on the computer. He knows he's doing something he's not supposed to be doing, checking back on his old life. And it's just hard for him to kind of let go. And so when he finally crosses over, does the deed, it's not as everything as it cracked out to be. And it's just, Completely heartbreaking, honestly. Like, but it didn't, right? But it, it's it's like it's heartbreaking, but you also can't blame him. Like, you don't think he's a bad person for doing this. It's like there's also like you know, again, like not again. We're both we're both privileged to be hearing individuals, right? Like, obviously, we have podcasts, right? They're kind of hard to do so otherwise. But um, it's also like okay, I could see where like Riz was starting to feel. I I felt like he was starting to feel trapped within this community when he had lived like an experience like with Lou and he knew love. Like she was, you you could tell like when, when he said, how long, like how long have you been sober? Four years. How long have you been with Lou? Four years. Like that's, uh, it's unsaid that like, yeah, he got his life around because of her, which say what you will about like doing it for somebody else and getting clean for something, whatever, whatever you need to get clean, man, do what you need to do. But like, it's so you can tell it's so important to him that like is like is him finding this community worth him giving up someone who's so important to him like that question is unanswered i think at the end of the film and which i think the best films leave those questions unanswered for you to like wrestle over for the days and the weeks after yeah i I would say it kind of perfectly fell to the point where he does meet up with Lou and they do re-embrace and rejoice which is great you know i again a part of me was kind of scared that she had moved on or something like that but not so much but you do you do see that his old life kind of falls short in a way when he's asking her to say oh we gotta go back on tour and then she doesn't want that you know she's already kind of like no that's not what i really want she's changed her hair and everything her look and he's kind of accepted it also at the end yeah yeah, he's accepted it yeah and so you know it, it's kind of is he happy with it? And then obviously the beautiful ending where he just takes off the the, the implant or the, the the device and he just like stops all the noise. Great ending. Yeah, learning to be comfortable with talents. Oh man, this is such a great film, right? I really was I really hope this surprises at the Oscar and maybe sneaks into a best picture nomination. Now I'm going to link in the show notes. I sent this to you, right, like before the a couple of days ago, but 
on January 28th, Variety has a series called Actors on Actors, where they have actors and actresses interview each other about their recent projects. Um, they released an episode with Minari's lead, Steve Yuen, as well as Riz Ahmed from Sound of Metal. I'll link it in the show notes, and I strongly recommend you check it out. Just seeing a Korean-American and British-Pakistani leading man, you know, these two men vibe off each other is such a treat. The only regret is that because of COVID, they're not actually in the same room. There were a lot of points here, which I'll, I'll run a couple of these by you, Ray. So one point, right, they go back and forth on the idea of representation, obviously being minorities as leads. Riz kind of talks about stage one being, you know, on screen, if in a stereotyped role, you know, being a terrorist, being the geeky kid, being a kung fu master or whatever, right? Stage two is being in more culturally specific characters, right? So like I talked earlier about the debut, you know, with Dante Bosco, and that's like a very Filipino-American specific thing, right? Uh, Minari is another example where it's like very, some very specific Korean cultural stuff. And then stage three is, you know, he called it the promised land. It's not about defining characters as their culture, right? This isn't a film about being Korean-American. Like, Minari is not supposed to be a film about being Korean-American. It's a film about com- the common humanity, about being a person in this specific emotion and experience, while can be culturally specific, is not supposed to be about that, right? Another good example in my head are Wong Fu Production, right? The YouTube channel, where they tell stories about love and relationships, and it just so happens that the leads are Asian and Asian American, and they make references to, you know, whatever specific culture that they're from, but it's not about the fact that they're Asian American, right? Which, to some degree, crazy which Asians, to some degree, is, is, is skirting that line, right? So what do you think about, like, this idea of different stages of representation. Riz was able to kind of point out somewhat of the blueprint. I don't want to say like it's the exact perfect blueprint, but just from his experience as an actor in the industry and obviously as a person of color, you know, what he what he points out as stage one is like there has to be pioneers, you know, unfortunately, because we are the minority. And when you're the minority, you there's such a scarcity to be able to land these roles. And unfortunately, because the greater powers, the gatekeepers of Hollywood, which tend to be, you know, white males, um, they're, they're, they're only going to have these roles that play into a stereotype. And so if you're a person of color who wants to get into acting because you love acting, right? Because they're, they're following their passion. Unfortunately, they just have to be able to, there are some folks who have had to kind of play into those stereotypes to just be able to say, we're possible, like the possibility of acting. That's all they're trying to do. I'm not saying this is what we're defined as, but we can at least be actors. And in stage two, then you have the areas and the moments with films where it shows our story is important too. Like our cultural background is important too. It's something to to highlight. It's something to create narratives on. And that is because there's an audience for that and there's an appetite for that. So we want to create these stories that touch you know, many, many people across the country, but also all over the world. And then stage three is kind of what he said is, is the promised land where we're no longer having to lead with our cultural specificity. We're just showing you the the diversity of our talent, diversity, lowercase d versus the big case d, uh, diversity, and just like being able to say, we have enough talent to be able to fill these roles that aren't culturally specific or cult, you know, that aren't required to be uh, of our ethnic background because there's enough talent to go around. It's basically, I think they said it too. It's like acting, if you think about it, is that you play someone else. 
And so it doesn't matter in terms of what you necessarily look like. And I think that's what Riz is talking about. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely seen like from, you know, the the most wokest of woke Twitter and Instagram and all that, where it's like, for example, the the, the week this episode comes out on Friday, uh, Ryan the Last Dragon's coming out on Disney Plus, right? Which I'm super excited for, right? Like, I'm actually going to pay the $30 from your access to be able to watch it, like, on the first <laughs> Now, that being said, right, like, you know, Kelly Marie Tran is, like, lead, is the lead actress. She's Vietnamese, I believe, American, uh, voicing, you know, a Southeast Asian Disney princess. But there has been pushback that, like, you know, oh, all of the side characters are mostly East Asian. They're, where are all the other Southeast Asian voice yeah. actors for this film, right? And it's like, it's a, it's a being, I'm torn in two places. Like, yes, I wanted to be more, you know, Filipino, Thai, Vietnamese, Indonesian, whatever, you know, cultural, like Southeast Asian that don't get as much view in Hollywood, which is now, frankly, more East Asian and to some degree South, South Asian. Also, Southeast Asian kind of get left out. At the same time, it's also like, can we just accept that? Like, can we just celebrate that there is Southeast Asian on screen? Yeah. And yeah, we can get to the point down the road where there's like more, you know, voice actors and actually culturally specific, right? But it's also like baby steps along the way. Like people have this idea of like, oh, if we're going to have representation, we need to jump straight to stage three in order to to get there. And as, as much as I would like it to be that it's stage three as soon as, like from the beginning. This is a pragmatic realism of, you know, like you said, the gatekeeping powers that be is that you're going to need to like work your way up there. So I don't know. That's just my, my little rant. No, I do. I agree. I, I understand the, the impulses of wanting fair representation in the truest sense. But, you know, like you touched upon it, there's a pragmatism. There, there's, a, there's a strategy to it, if you will, where we want to be able, I mean, it's unfortunate. It's an unfortunate reality that we have to deal with and just proves how much more of a runway people of color have to work with. But if not this, then what what do you suggest? I say to those people on Twitter. Last point from from this from this you know conversation between the two. I wanted to bring in two different points that they brought up. One is that they talked about code switching, right? Like the idea of changing what you present of yourself to different people based on your environment, right? So like at home, I'm like Filipino. Like I bring up my more Filipino side, like with my parents, you know, at work or out in the world, like more more American side. And I have different personas for like you know when I'm talking about anime or when I'm talking about you know like hip hop or talking about movies now. Right, like I have like different parts to myself, and it's like, and the question of like, is it who you are versus what other people expect of you? And then the other part I want to bring in is that they they kind of close on this idea that all immigrants are artists, right? Like you kind of mentioned earlier, where you pack up everything, move to a place by to be so in an unknown place and create something from nothing, right? And creating a new performance, right? And and that idea of code switching and be and immigrants being. Uh, artists, uh, those were just like really powerful thoughts. And again, definitely check out this video video out if you haven't. I'll link in the show notes. Uh, Ray, what are your thoughts on kind of this, these closing thoughts from this conversation with them? I think code switching as a concept it can have a negative connotation. When I first learned about code switching, it was in the context of like Asian people speaking culturally or using like ebonics or like kind of having like with black slang right because they're kind of switching just because they're around black people for me when i go back to the philippines my accent ever so slightly switches to be more filipino when i speak yeah yeah and 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 when i learned about it in that context i thought code switching was like a bad thing but as i learned more about it kind of what you just uh, explained to to here is that you know, it's a somewhat of a neutral term, and it's more of a concept that, that we all kind of experience in some form or fashion, right? It really de- depends on what 
group that you're with or the environment that you're with. In the video between Riz and Steven, um, I love the 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 part where I think Riz says that um, he got this advice advice from actor Vincent Cassell, where when you're a young actor, you continually try to be the character that you are, you know, trying to portray. You like try to be that character as much as you can because Escape you just want yourself. Yeah, develop your skills. Escape from yourself. There you go. And then as you mature as an actor and you become more experienced, then it's almost kind of reverse where you're you implement the person into the character and then the audience sees more of uh, you as an authentic actor and then your interpretation of that character so um, i thought that was really beautiful and i think that kind of touches upon the code switching is because we are sometimes a product of our own reality and you get to a point where you take in your environment and you 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 also have to realize sometimes that it's just your authentic self. It's still the question of like, is it your authentic self or is it what other people expect of you, even if it's not your actual yeah. self, right? Which is like a whole other conversation, like not that this podcast <laughs> yeah. does not have the time nor the scope to be able to carry on. So again, I don't, I don't have out. my couch to lay on. <laughs> I know, I know. So, all right. So some questions to wrap up, right? So again, we've kind of gone over these three films and we kind of touched at the beginning. Again, Asian Americans and Asian film are having a moment in mainstream media, especially with these award shows. Um, I'm thinking, but then there's, you know, there's still pushback of like, you know, hashtag Oscar so white a couple of years ago compared to Parasite winning this last year. Also, you know, this idea of Asian international culture versus Asian American culture, right? Where it's like, you know, K-pop, anime, foreign films, K-dramas, you know, taking over Netflix or whatever versus these stories made in America about, you know, Asian Americans, right? So what do you think is the state of Asian and Asian American representation in mainstream media? I think it's getting better. I think representation in mainstream media or, or film is getting better, but not nearly enough to where we want it to be. I think with these award shows, these big award shows like the Oscars and the Golden Globes, you know, I also recognize there's numerous institutions that hand out awards for sure. But I, for the purpose of this conversation, the Academy and Golden Globes are, are kind of seen as like the top tier, if you will. And sometimes it's a catch-22, right? In where we, we say we don't need these big awards to validate our stories or good, good, or good filmmaking. But we also kind of say our shit is good. Like, you know, our stories are valuable. Our stories tell the American story. Why can't we get a fair share of recognition, right? So sometimes it is a catch-22. I think it's getting better when we see achievements like uh, Minari, Parasite, and, you know, Black Panther, just in terms of just general representation. But even even the year that Parasite won all those awards, Best Picture, Best, Best Screenplay and Director, there was no acting nominations for that movie and the acting in that movie was phenomenal yeah i mean it's definitely definitely getting better right it, and i think the idea of like we don't need the these institutions to approve us it's like true we don't need them to self-validate it still would be nice though it still would be nice <laughs> i have i have another podcast called uh, the box office watch podcast and the idea there is that you know i want to keep track of what films are doing well at the box office because Frankly speaking, money talks. Money is the language of Hollywood. And so the films that do well on the opening weekends over the lifetime of the film, which are profitable, are the ones that get made more, which is why, you know, since after Crazy Rich Asians, we've seen this explosion and like the fast tracking of Shang-Chi as like the next Marvel superhero film, right? So it's like, 
yeah, like the the money money will talk, success will talk, and I think that's why like these are important to talk about in this context of uh, of the awards. So I, I definitely want to like close. Well, one of the last questions I want to close on is, you know, in recent weeks, unfortunately, there's been like a spike in anti Asian hate crimes across the country. Um, terrible, and you know, this is partly due to the COVID pandemic, but frankly speaking, it kind of goes back for generations at this point, right? Like random history fact the first uh the first uh executive or sorry the first law passed like ban immigration from a foreign country was targeted toward asian people in the chinese exclusion act so you know uh it definitely goes like it definitely is a long history here in the states so you know i i steven yuan had this quote in the new york times you know sometimes i wonder if the asian american experience is what it's like when you're thinking about everyone else but nobody thinks about you right so in this time when you know, so like, you know, so many people, I have friends who are scared here in New York to actually go outside anymore if they weren't already scared because of the pandemic, because of the you know, possible random hate crimes, right? Like, what do you think having this sort of representation of Stephen Yuen and, and the Yi and the Yi family, of Riz Ahmed, of Chloe Zhao behind the camera, right? Like, what does that representation mean in context of these hate crimes? Oh, it's super important. You know, on my episode of Minari, and I'll use Minari for an example, I say on there, it's a very timely movie. Not only was it a great story, but just when it came out was super important because at the time you had, you know, 45 saying China flu, Kung flu, inflammatory rhetoric, all that stuff. And so we, as Asian Americans, we were kind of put in a position where we had to prove our Americanism again, which is really ridiculous because most of us were born here or have settled here for the longest time. So Minari acted like this reminder for us to say, you know, we're as American as the next person out there and we can tell American stories without falling into any stereotypes. And the story just so happens to center around a Korean American family but the the narrative is about pursuit of happiness pursuit of prosperity produ- pursuit of opportunity which is the like bedrock of american ideals so i think that's why it's so important that the movie came out and how representation is able to combat and battle back this the racist and hate hateful ideas of needing to prove like what it means to be american you know well said, well said. And, you know, uh, definitely go check these films out. Uh, if you can, order from your local Chinatown. Uh, hashtag Save Our Chinatowns. That all being said, any other closing thoughts, anything you might not have touched on on any of these three films or these films, three films in general you want to touch on, Ray? Yeah, just real quick. I think, you know, I think I found a through line between all these three films is that they do touch upon finding a sense of belonging in some form or fashion, right? It's it's kind of being removed from a very comfortable situation, being put into a new situation. And you're kind of on this outer membrane and we're, we're forced to take a look to see what does that look like and what are the struggles about that. And uh, I think all three endings purposely kind of show like uh somewhat ambivalent ending but as a uh, the single single message of like this is the life now this is the new life and it's time to move on and accept and i think there was a through line between all three films really beautiful right and also get your own rv apparently living in rvs are great and do so in nature i know (laughs) i know i was like man i gotta get an rv all right so you know that being said let's close it up you know any films in 2021 uh oscar wise or not you kind of mentioned the eternals obviously and the other marvel films coming out anything else you haven't mentioned that you're excited for this coming year Really coming up soon. I think actually next week is Boogie. I really want to see Boogie Eddie Huang. Um, I'm really excited for that trailer. So I'm really ex- 
stoked to see how that movie's going to turn out. That's the only thing I can think of. Yeah. For sure, for sure. Definitely, definitely looking forward to that one. Um, anything you want to plug? Obviously, the Real Asian podcast, any personal socials, or where, where can listeners uh, go to tune in to, to hear your voice? Yeah, definitely. So, definitely find us on Instagram, Facebook, Real Asian Podcast. Um, you, if you want to follow my personal IG, is on there as well. Uh, we release episodes every other Friday. We're currently on season two. Um, we're actually planning on doing Raya the Last Dragon um, as potentially as a live episode. So we're still working out all the details for that event. It's uh, in partnership with UC Berkeley. But um, so the, we have a scheduled day. We just got to work out all the details. Hopefully it, it goes through. It should be on March 12th. So really, really soon. But yeah, follow us. R-E-E-L Asian Podcast. Right. And definitely links to all of those uh, will be in the show notes. Uh, Ray, thank you again for coming on the Oscars Death Face podcast. Um, you know, even if you're not participating, you know, that all the more power to you. Love what you guys are doing at Real Asian Podcast. And, you know, just thank you so much for coming on and having this conversation with me. It's been a pleasure. It's been an honor. It's a, uh, been a privilege. Thank you, Paula. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Many thanks again to Ray for coming onto the podcast. As you can probably tell, I've definitely been looking forward to talking to somebody about Minari for a long time, and it felt really good to get all of that off my chest. Though, if I'm honest, I probably could have gone on for a lot longer. Um, anyway, I strongly recommend you check out the Real Asian Podcast, R-E-E-L, uh, wherever you get this podcast, as well as on social media. I'll link to all of that in the show notes, as well as to the variety Actors on Actors episode we discussed. And again, if you're, and if you're interested in learning about the rise in anti-Asian racism and hate crimes happening recently and what you can do to help, check out the hashtag StopAsianHate, hashtag StopAAPI8 campaigns on social media. In particular, shout outs to Goldhouse and Cape USA, who both do amazing work of or community building around this issue, as well as helping promote Asian representation in film, such as their current campaign promoting Raya and the Last Dragon coming out this week, the first South East Asian Princess Disney movie. Uh, once again, I'll also plug my appearance on the ContraZoom podcast with Dakota uh, about my most anticipated films of 2021, which will be linked in the show notes. As a teaser, you may hear a very familiar voice from that episode next week when we go over the predictions of what will finally get nominated for the Oscars, having seen by then most of the likely Best Picture nominees. Uh, that about wraps up this episode of the Oscars Death Race podcast. Let me know how your Death Race is going on Twitter at OscarsDRaceCast or via email at OscarsDeathRacePodcast at gmail.com. Make sure you subscribe to the show on the podcast service of choice, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. And if you can leave us a review there or on Podchasers.com or even just share it with a friend who loves movies, any of that super helps out. Uh, if you want to directly financially contribute to the show, you can do so on Patreon, linked in the show notes. Also linked will be my letterbox account under the username NinjaBoy, boy with an I. Uh, be sure to check out the Oscar Race and Oscar's Death Race subreddits, as well as the Oscar's Death Race Discord, as well as the community website. Uh, all again, all linked to the show notes. Uh, music is provided by Kevin MacLeod. Find his stuff at incompetech.filmmusic.io. Editing production is provided by Ninja Boy Media. That's it for this week. This has been Paulo of the Oscars Death Race Podcast. Until next time, I'll be here trying to watch all the Oscar nominees, or I try it. <laughs>